AgriTalk is brought to you by Full Scale from Helena. Grow Strong returns this season with breakthrough foliar nutrition from Full Scale at Reproduction. And by Propane. Propane is the energy for everyone, especially farmers. Environmentally friendly propane can fuel most anything on the farm. See how at propane.com. Boxed Beef, Cattle Supplies, Brazilian BSE, WOTUS, the Lesser Prairie Chicken, Climate Smart Recommendations for the Farm Bill, and Erasing Any Confusion About the Acreage Estimates Released This Morning. It's a lot to do, I know, but I think we've got it covered. Live from 223's Day via Farm Journal Broadcast, this is AgriTalk. This morning, we'll begin with a conversation with Ethan Lane from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Then it's Andrew Walmsley from the American Farm Bureau Federation and later Lance Honig from NAS. Right after the news, Greg Henderson from Drovers. I'm handsome newsman Davis Michelson. And now, here's the host of AgriTalk, Chip Flory. All right, Davis. Hey, things are looking a little better out there today than what they were yesterday. That's for sure. I'm glad to hear that. I'll report about it in the news here. But, man, there... <sighs> There was some trouble, apparently, related to some winter storms. Oh, yeah. Ah, Oh, yeah. Dude. No no question about it. So um, just trying to keep up with with what's going on around the country and so on. And you know what? We did get a little bit of news out of uh, Washington, D.C. this morning that I want to talk about here just real quickly. And that is the... um, the acreage estimates for planted acres in oh. 2023 that came out of the Ag Outlook Forum. You know, we've been talking about the acreage mix so much. I thought we'd, sure. we'd throw that out here real quick. Corn planted acreage, 91 million. Uh, okay. Soybean planted acreage, 87.5 million. Okay? Hmm. okay. If I do my math right, I think I come up with 178.5 on the the combined corn and soybean acreage okay uh that's a little lighter than what i've been anticipating it's a little lighter than what mark holbrock uh, anticipated in yesterday afternoon's conversation indeed uh, but but you know these are very early thoughts and we're going to make sure that you understand the difference between these estimates and what we will get on march 31 uh we'll do that in the final segment today when we have lance honig in here from nas Okay. Sounds great. Yeah. What else have we got in the news, bud? Well, except the number of Americans filing for unemployment benefits fell by 3,000 in the week ending February 18, failing to meet market expectations. The latest value remains close to the nine-month low hit at the end of January, which could force employers to raise wages to attract and keep staff, adding to further inflationary pressure. Yeah, this this is something that uh, the Fed is going to be taking a very close look at, no question. Well, Brazil confirmed a case of BSE in a cow in the northern state of Para. Ag ministry officials say it appears to be an atypical form of the disease, but samples from the animal were sent to the World Health Organization for further testing. Brazil halted beef export to China effective immediately. However, Brazilian beef is still available for import into the United States. National Cattlemen's Beef Association VP of Government Affairs Ethan Lane questions the timeline in which the case was reported. As of right now, the way our system is structured, they still have access to the United States, uh, even though China has has triggered that uh, that shutdown procedure uh, for the next few weeks into their market. How quickly did they 
report this case? Was it a month ago? Everyone else in the world gets that turned around in a matter of hours or a day or so. The only one who has a hard time with this is Brazil, and they consistently fail to report in a timely manner. The timeline here is something we're going to be looking very closely at. Yeah. 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 We we talked with uh, Ethan earlier this morning. We're going to have more of that conversation uh, regarding WOTUS and the Endangered Species Act coming up in the next segment. But critically here, there's mm-hmm. one state, one state in Brazil, Santa Canarita, that we can't, that the U.S., can import beef from, uh, and that's because they are basically a self-declared uh, free of foot and mouth disease, and that's hmm. the big issue here as well. And pro- you know that's the bigger issue in why I would like to see no beef coming in from Brazil at this time. Well, in other news, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg will visit the site of a Norfolk Southern train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, today. According to the Washington Post, Buttigieg, quote, will meet with members of the community, get an update on the National Transportation Safety Board's investigation, and speak to investigators from his department who have been helping determine the cause of the derailment. And uh, pertaining to that winter storm, more than 850,000 power outages have been reported in winter storms across the United States today, Chip, with more snow, icing, and blizzard conditions ahead. The wintry weather has already closed roads and hampered air travel across the Midwest with more than 40 inches of snow dumped in Wyoming and 32 inches in Montana over the past two days. How much did you wind up getting there locally, Chip? Very little. Very Uh, little. A little bit of ice, a little bit of snow, some sleet mixed in there. The wind is going to be an issue later today. Well, the Food and Ag Climate Alliance Wednesday released policy recommendations for the 2023 Farm Bill. President of the American Farm Bureau Federation, Zippy Duvall, says, quote, we look forward to working with Congress to strengthen Title I programs, improve risk management tools, and utilize these recommendations to advance our sustainability mission in a manner that respects farmers and ranchers as partners. Yeah, we've got Andrew Walmsley, uh, the Senior Director of Congressional Affairs, coming up at the bottom of the hours. Uh, He's with uh, AFBF as well. Well, the Department of Ag this week announced a $59 million investment to increase independent meat and poultry processing capacity. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack says USDA will continue to work tirelessly to give farmers and ranchers a fair chance to compete in the marketplace. And finally, in world news, Russian President Vladimir Putin suggests Chinese leader Xi Jinping has agreed to visit Moscow and hailed new frontiers in relations between the two countries. Jim. <laughs> that does... Yeah, that Dicey. that makes the hair Dicey. on the back of my neck stand up. Yeah, right. that's that's a little scary. All right, thank you very much, Davis. Let's bring you in bet. Greg Henderson, editorial director at Drovers. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Chip. This beef market, holy smokes, Greg, it's on fire. Yeah, absolutely. We are definitely in a bull market, Chip. And, you know, this week I'm going to say we've got some good news and some bad news. Yeah. Obviously, that good news is that beef prices, wholesale beef prices are, are up. They're up $23 per hundredweight just in February. So that's about a, a, a climb of a dollar a day, right? Yeah. Chip, that puts $200 increasing value on an 850-pound carcass. And we're calling that good news because it further confirms consumer demand for beef is mm-hmm. high, and the rising cutout has kept packers in the black, even as they are paying higher prices for fed cattle, right? Yeah. So Keeps competition high. Last year, we think Packers were making about $300 a head. 
Last week, Sterling Marketing says they're probably making about $75 a head, okay. even though they're paying $20 a hundredweight more for those fed cattle coming out of, out of the feed yard. Okay. So I said there's some bad news. And if you're a feed yard operator, obviously you're buying replacement feeder cattle that are $20 a hundredweight higher, in some cases $25 a hundredweight higher. Chip, we've got to be concerned about these rising break-evens. They're already in that, uh, you know, 155, 160 range. Um, probably a concern for feed yards going uh, further. But obviously, if you're selling feeder cattle, it's good news, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you're on the on the feeder cattle side of things, the demand seems to still be there. And as long as the Packers are making some money, they the competition should be strong enough to keep some strength in the cash market and there's a little bit of meat left on the bone for the feed yards there greg but it's getting tight isn't it it is getting tight you know one of the things we're going to watch going forward is that packer capacity utilization last week it was about 85 percent, according to sterling marketing that's down five percent from a year ago so that's important figure Yes, it is. Greg Henderson, Editorial Director at Drovers. Thanks, buddy. We've got Ethan Lane from NCBA next. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. You're listening to AgriTalk, where the conversation begins. Join us at 855-4-TALK-AG. Well, I wish I had some shoes on my two bare feet. And it's getting kind of cold and it's painted on Welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm Chip Flory. Glad that you are with us this morning. Joining us right now is... Ethan Lane. Ethan is the Vice President, Government Affairs at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Ethan, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Well, you know what? We're doing okay here in Northeast Iowa. The the storm hit us, but it wasn't too bad. And as long as the wind doesn't get too heavy, we'll survive it. So how are things your way? You know, I'm talking to friends and producers all across the country that are telling me how sick they are of winter. And the yeah. snow that's piled up and the ice and the storm that's coming right now. And it is going to be 80 degrees today in Washington, D.C. Unbelievable. Yeah, the guys out in North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin that are dealing with the storm and taking care of cattle, they're up against it a bit right now. No question. Oh, about no, it. Question, so, no question. No yep. question about it. it. This is this is a rough one in the span of it. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing the impacts already. So it's, it's going to yeah. be something we're going to keep a close eye on over the next couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. All right. The waters of the U.S. It continues to be a front burner issue, and I think it's going to continue that way 
right until we get a Supreme Court ruling later this year, hopefully in June or by June, on the definitions of the waters of the U.S. What's the latest? Well, you're right. You know, we have this rulemaking uh, that, that's that's out from EPA and, and the Army Corps of Engineers that is co- sort of, you know, overlapping or smashing headlong into uh, a looming Supreme Court decision uh, looking at how far EPA and water and uh, Army Corps can go in defining what is a significant nexus to a water of the United States or a federal water. And this really is sort of after more than a decade, you know, 15 years of messing with this issue and talking about this issue. This really is sort of an interesting couple months because we could see at least a bit of clarity in the form of a Supreme Court ruling that gives some parameters to EPA uh, uh, as to how far they can go in in writing a rule like this, you know we know where the court's head is. They've had some rulings in the in the last um, in the last session on the extent to which an agency can interpret statute, um, however they feel like it. And what the Supreme Court has said is, you can't do that. If Congress didn't spell it out, you can't make it up in regulation. And that really goes to the core of this Clean Water Act issue with WOTUS. So. You know, as the as the administration moves forward with their with their rule, we're litigating that. We're asking federal court to uh, to put an injunction in place to keep that from going into place while we wait for the Supreme Court, because what we don't want is even further uncertainty for our producers with this mishmash of rulemakings that could be repealed and Supreme Court decisions um, put that on top of multiple versions of this rule over the last couple of years. Um, and it's it's just an escalating mess. And, and what would be most helpful is to just clear the air with this stuff and give producers a little bit of breathing room. Yeah. Yeah. It, what about the exemptions, Ethan? Aren't there exemptions for farmers and ranchers when it comes to some of these WOTUS rules? Well, they did put some of the exemptions back into the final rule. You know, in the proposed rule, they stripped them all out. And I think they dipped their toe in the water and realized that was going to be well, wildly unpopular. So they put a lot of the exemptions back in, but they also created sort of a new uh, new form of jeopardy by putting in this, this idea that, that a lot of uh, sort of questionable, uh, questionable designations would be on a case by case basis. Yeah. So now you've Jeez. got this construct where you're, where you're very much dependent on whoever that federal employee is, that federal bureaucrat that's going to interpret whether or not you're subject to federal jurisdiction. And that puts them in the same category that a lot of our federal lands grazing permit holders in the West deal with every day, right? You have the statute, you have the regulation, and then you have, you know, Joe from the agency. And at the end of the day, it's really up to whatever Joe thinks that day. Yeah. And, and that is uh, the definition of uncertainty for our producers. So exactly. yeah, they put some exemptions back in, but when you then say, we're going to take it case by case, and we'll just leave it up to the, to the personnel to figure out how they want to do it. Um, that, that is absolutely untenable for our producers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Is this something that should be, or could be addressed by Congress again, say in the farm bill? You know, not, not, naturally. And I guess by, by that, I mean, you know, Congress can always take up and deal with whatever they want to um, in, in in many cases, but um, there's not a great natural fit for a WOTUS fix here. You know, and this issue, uh, you know, as, as you know, goes well beyond agriculture, you know, the home builders and, and you know, yeah. massive other parts of the economy that, that are in sort of land use, uh, you know, focused businesses um, have eyes on this. It impacts a lot of different folks. That's why the coalition to oppose it is yeah. so broad. Um, the, the farm bill would be a, would be a, a, not the, not a great fit. Um, the Supreme court really is where we're at. 
That's okay. that's where this thing started in 2008, and it's the logical place to now go back and and have some some kind of fresh eyes from the Supreme Court on the current state of affairs. We've seen you know three now different rulemakings going back to Obama, then Trump, now Biden. Um, it's time for the Supreme Court to weigh back in and say, all right, here's some further direction on on what we expect and and what we think is too far. Okay. Okay, gotcha. Let's switch gears and go to the Endangered Species Act. Uh, this is this is one that when you get to the core of why this is a problem, it just blows my mind, Ethan, that uh, that that ranchers may have to deal with this. It, it, it's 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 probably the issue I've spent more of my career in Washington on than any others: the Endangered Species Act and its impact on on landowners and on ranchers. And it's, it's stunning when the Trump administration began um, and, and the, that new team came into the Department of Interior, one of the most incredible statements I heard from a Republican administration was, we are at a point where the Endangered Species Act is so broken, it is almost impossible for us to remove a species from the list once it is listed. That's why I always call it a roach motel. Species yeah. check in, but they never check out because that federal court system process that the environmentalists have mastered is always there to find some small inconsistency with how a delisting was completed that allows them to overturn it and keep those species on the list. The gray wolf is the best example of that. You know, going back to the Obama administration, you have folks that have said this species is recovered. The Obama administration said that. The Biden administration has, it continues to believe that is the case. But even with that that sort of agreeance across multiple stakeholders, um, they can't get the, the wolf off the list because these groups litigate. We're looking at the lesser prairie chicken now. We're litigating on that rule because it's so outrageously unfair to ranchers um, and, and fails to recognize how important grazing is to the species being there on the yeah. landscape right now as it is. Yeah. They're the, we're the only reason that the species is still there and, and as, as healthy as they are. Um, but that's been a real moving target as well. And it's kind of this balance between, are you talking about habitat and how much habitat is there or how many birds are on the ground? And no matter which one we satisfy, the Fish and Wildlife Service tends to then focus on the other one. Right. Um, it's, a, it's an incredibly frustrating, well, frustrating uh, set of circumstances. And, you know, we, we try to help folks in other parts of the country understand what could be coming their way. You know, looking at it from a Western perspective, Western ranchers are all ESA experts because they all have these species issues on their ranches. Mm-hmm. More and more, we're seeing it in the middle part of the country and further east, whether you're talking about bats, whether you're talking about bees, whether you're talking about monarch butterflies. Um, this is coming for producers in other parts of the country. And it's something yeah. that, that folks are going to need to start caring about. Um, in farm country as well as ranch country. Yeah, the thing that blows me away in this case is the third-party review of grazing plans. So yeah. you can you can lay yeah. out the plan, and then you've got to get it approved by a third party, and it's hard telling who that third party is going to be. Well, it, it is, but boy, it sure looks like it was written for environmental NGOs to be in the driver's yeah. seat there. And, and, you know, I think that's something people need to remember is that's the business model of a lot of these environmental NGOs now. Yep. They want to be the judge and jury on how you use your property. They don't want the federal government to do it. They want to do it. So, I mean, make no mistake, this is very intentional third party review, you know, whether that be the Nature Conservancy or the Environmental Defense Fund or anybody else. Um, that's who wants to sit in judgment of whether you're doing it right or not. And, and that is absolutely unacceptable. That is not yeah. their role. That is not 
an appropriate use of a of a group like that. And and it's it's a uh, it's an innovative idea that 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 we didn't need. Um, yep. So that is definitely going to be a focal point of our pushback on this on this rule. Okay. Is, okay. is this bizarre concept that we're going to allow third parties to sit in judgment of, of how a, <laughs> yep. a, a ranching operation is complying? Yep. We've only got about 30 seconds left here, but I'm going to ask you, how closely are you watching the Prop 12 decision at the Supreme Court? Seems like it's oh, going to be coming pretty quick. Yeah, I think I think we're we're it's looking like we might see something here, you know, in the next couple of days. I think everybody in animal agriculture is watching it very closely. It's going to be a great bellwether on on kind of if the Supreme Court is still looking at this stuff the way they've been looking at it. It's an interesting issue though, Chip, because yep. you know, we really are talking about an industry that typically focuses on yep. states' rights. And and in this case, it's kind of the other side of the coin, right? Because yeah. California did something inside their state boundaries that's going to impact other states. And the yep. national supply chain, um, so it, it presents some interesting philosophical challenges for a, for a conservative court, and I think exactly. that's what a lot of us are looking at: is how exactly. they're going to navigate that. In, exactly, in Ethan. In that case, hey, we're out of time, but thank you so much, Ethan. I really appreciate you, man. You bet. Great talking to you. All right, that is Ethan Lane, VP of Government Affairs at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Coming up next, we've got Andrew Walmsley, Senior Director, Government Affairs for the American Farm Bureau Federation. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now, you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. Time for Markets Now with the experts from ProFarmer. Joining us now, ProFarmer editor Brian Grady. Beach. let's go ahead and start with the soy complex. What do you got going? Uh, mostly softer tone here at uh, mid-morning, Chip. Not a big deal uh, by any means. Uh, soy oil's trading just mildly to the downside. Uh, but that's in the face of uh, some decent strength in the crude oil market. So kind of going counter there. But, uh, uh, you know, meal futures, uh, soybeans, they're under uh, what I would call light to, to moderate pressure here at mid-morning. Um, you know, just kind of drifting lower, I guess, is the best way to put it. Anything driving the markets here this morning in particular? No, not really. USDA was out with his initial projections, and and they're just that their initial projections yep. as of uh, you know January data, and and so uh, I I don't think that there was anything super surprising in the the numbers. Uh, they did give uh, the soybean market a little bit of support at the end of overnight trade uh, when they were released, but uh, nothing that's uh, lasting. Obviously, uh, with the the market drifting a little bit lower here at mid. All right, really mixed trade in the wheat markets as well. Yeah, they're trying to work to the upside in SRW contracts, especially uh, spring wheat's following a little bit, but HRW contracts are mostly weaker. Okay, take us over to the livestock trade. 
pretty quiet in the uh, the live cattle market, to be honest with you. Just waiting on cash cattle trade to develop and uh, starting to position for the cattle on feed report. So what we'll probably see is the cattle on feed report come out before we see active cash cattle trade for the week, uh, unless there's some sort of uh, major move by the packers to increase prices there. Uh, feeder cattle are being supported by the uh, weakness in the corn market this morning. And then hog futures uh, had a poor performance yesterday and just a little bit of follow through selling this morning. Gotcha, buddy. All right. Thank you. That is Pro Farmer Editor Brian Grady on Markets Now. Opinions expressed on AgriTalk do not necessarily reflect the views of Farm Journal Broadcasting, affiliate stations, or sponsors. On your favorite radio station or your preferred digital device, AgriTalk is live every weekday. Welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm your host, Chip Flory. Uh, boy, we've got a lot of ground to cover here in this segment with Andrew Walmsley. He is the Senior Director of Government Affairs for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Andrew, welcome to AgriTalk. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad that you are here. Okay, the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance. Uh, AFBF is a co-chair and a founding member of uh, FACA. It was launched in 2020. Tell us about the alliance and, and what it hopes to accomplish. Yeah, really, the, the alliance grew out of some work we were doing uh, called Farmers for a Sustainable Future, where we were bringing together all of the farmer and producer groups and commodity organizations in D.C. to tell the good story of Americans' agriculture's uh, sustainability and all the work that our farmers and ranchers have been doing to adopt climate smart practices. Uh, this was noticed by uh, the Environmental Defense Fund, and so they approached a, a handful of us back in late 2019 to say, hey, can we sit down and see if we can find some common ground around climate policy and agricultural policy? And, you know, that really hadn't ever happened before. And so uh, I don't know how optimistic all the groups were at that time to see where we would end up, but we did uh, actually end up uh, sharing about 40 policy recommendations back at the end of 2020. We grew from a, a, a small group of about eight organizations to represent forestry, the food value chain, state departments of ag, environmentalists, farmers, um, to now over 80 organizations. And we've been working across uh, the last Congress, um, trying to find that, that common ground between Republicans and Democrats yeah. um, that better tells and promotes uh, what farmers and ranchers are doing on the landscape, while also recognizing um, all the challenges facing producers that it's not just climate. We still have to take into account, um, right. you know, sustainability, resiliency, uh, manage for water, manage for soil, manage for wildlife. And uh, what we came to this week was uh, a list of recommendations for the 2023 Farm Bill. So this has really been going on for several years now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. it's And it's a diverse alliance, as, as you talked about. There's got to be a lot of different opinions flying around when, when these conversations happen. How is it even possible to find agreement that turns into a recommendation, Andrew? Lot, lot of time. Um, um, you know, some might cope other ways, but no, we are consensus driven uh, and we yeah. have to have a unanimous approval from a 23 member steering committee. Like I said, when we were eight, that was a little bit easier. Yeah. And we have now grown to 23 steering committee members. So what you see in the recommendations is consensus 
I think we've yep. spent over, we started last June on trying to put together these farm bill recommendations, well over 150 hours of negotiating pretty wow. much every word that you will see in that document. Okay, really, really interesting. There's got to be a set of guiding principles that form these recommendations when we're talking about federal climate policies uh, for the Farm Bill. What are those guiding principles? Yeah, and this is critical for Farm Bureau. Uh, you know, the first point is making sure they're voluntary and incentive based. Uh, yeah. A one size fit all type of mandate out of Washington is, is not going to be well received. Plus, it doesn't respect the diversity of American agriculture and the flexibility needed. So that's the first kind of principle. Uh, the second one is advance science-based outcomes. Yep. Uh, then promote resiliency and help our rural economies. Uh, ensure all producers have the ability to participate in, in any of the private climate markets or any of the public policy investments. Uh, whether you're a beginning farmer and rancher, especially crop producer or a traditional row crop farmer, and then finally, on the policy side, they need to be strongly bipartisan. We, yep. we don't want to get into fights with one party or the other. Uh, what's being asked both from private companies and the supply chain to public policy is asking farmers and ranchers to make significant investments. And so we can't let that be yeah. shifting uh, as the political winds change over the years. We need to have that long term to overuse the term resiliency in public policy so those investments can pay for themselves we see the benefits and we can build that trust on the direction of improving uh, you know all yeah. the already great work that farmers and ranchers are, are undertaking okay there's six categories with recommendations in here first one on the list conservation risk management and credit all fit into one category and there's 22 specific recommendations for the category including um that uh uh, that the efforts to, of the uh, of the climate smart farming projects from USDA, I guess that's what I would call it, uh, that they are fully funded. Are are you recommending that because USDA has used the CCC funds to support these these farming practices, should the source of that funding be moved from CCC and these? USDA program, should they be incorporated into the farm bill? Well, a lot of the programs that we've built a foundation of, of integrating climate smart practices are found in the farm bill. When you look at particularly the four working lands programs uh, and then, you know, CRP that are found in Title II of, of the conservation title, you know, at, at just the federal level, uh, farmers and ranchers have voluntarily partnered with the government to enroll over 140 million acres across this country. That's larger than the states of California and New York combined. Um, so there's clearly that that interplay there on an, in, in uh, continually improving uh, those conservation programs. And a lot of the recommendations, you know, there, there are some concerns around cost and making yeah. sure they're adequately funded. But, but I would say the majority of the recommendations are looking at ways to streamline those programs to reduce the headache for producers yeah. and find ways for NRCS to better adapt uh, new practices that qualify to kind of cut through a lot of the red tape. So it's not all just about money. 
it, it's a lot about trying to improve government to where it's easier for farmers and ranchers to navigate some of these programs. Boy, that's the bottom line that I took away from the livestock and dairy recommendations, Andrew, because, well, number one, when you get into it, the first thing that, that it includes is a conversation or some comments about the adjusted gross income and, and basically the AGI limits and the payment caps kind of get in the way of the larger livestock operations working with NRCS to initiate some of these climate smart practices. Is that what uh, FACA is saying there? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, from an organization like Farm Bureau, uh, we want to see all producers to be able to to participate in, in any program. Uh, and, and bringing diversity into that is is critical. And, and to your point, um, that some of those limits uh, put constraints on producers that can have a huge impact when it comes to environmental benefits, um, to implementing climate smart practices. And I think there's a recognition with the FACA recommendations, uh, especially from our environmental friends as well, we, which we think is important, is is to look at those uh, those barriers to to also account for. The inflationary pressures that we have seen as we continue to see more and more uh, higher production expenses over the last year and and to be forecasted into next year uh, for Congress to take a look at what those barriers may be for participation for producers of all sizes. Yeah. And and as as you said, several of the recommendations targeting the NRCS seem to be directed at streamlining the process to allow NRCS to more quickly approve projects, correct? Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, the, the thing that's out there is we've seen a lot of funding directed towards USDA. Um, you know, the big question is around Inflation Reduction Act funding, where you had about $40 billion for agriculture in that bill. Yeah. Um, we don't we don't want to see those dollars lost. Uh, you know, Farm Bureau wasn't able to support the IRA, but that funding's been allocated and signed into law. And so, you know, if USDA is going to get those dollars to producers to make an impact, uh, yep. we've got to streamline processes. We've got to have staffing um, yep. to help work with farmers. It, I mean, if you've got all this programmatic programmatic funding, but no one to work with a farmer to access it, what good does it do? So right. either proving processes at USDA or taking some of those IRA dollars and ensuring that they're preserved in a farm bill is really some of the focus of the recommendations. Okay. All right. Excellent. Let's go to the energy category here. Uh, It looks like the energy recommendations are focused on developing uh, solar projects primarily. Is that a fair statement? Well, I think they're they're really twofold is, you know, clearly supporting the energy title in the Farm Bill, uh, the Renewable Energy for America program, which helps farmers improve energy efficiency and deploy renewable energy. And then the second piece that you're hitting on is is looking to USDA to provide maybe more of a leadership role to help farmers, ranchers, local stakeholders, working with our extension offices and our state departments of ag to work through this very contentious issue we're seeing in a lot of rural communities when it comes to renewable energy siting and in particular solar siting. Uh, You know, from a FACA perspective and a Farm Bureau perspective, you know, we support renewable energy, but we also support the need for agricultural productivity. You know, we have a moral imperative to feed about nine and a half billion people in the next couple of decades. And yet we see these community challenges driving up either farmland or taking out prime farmland for the development of solar projects. And so we're kind of hoping Congress directs or working with USDA um, to help provide some guidance there to, to empower local stakeholders 
on what are the questions to be asked, what farmers and ranchers need to know, what solar developers need to know, that how yeah. these projects will impact rural communities and productive farmland. So that's really the heart of those energy recommendations. Gotcha, gotcha. A couple of other things that are in here that we've got to wrap it up. But uh, on the conservation category, there's some incentive in there to recognize and reward the early adopters in conservation tillage. I think that's really important. Then on food waste, there are six specific recommendations in there, including support for biotech that could be used to extend the shelf life of some of the, the crops that are grown. I think that's a really, really important one. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you all. All right. That is Andrew Walmsley. He is the Senior Director, Government Affairs, American Farm Bureau Federation. We've got Lance Honig up next. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. When news breaks, the newsmakers talk about it on AgriTalk with Chip Flory. Welcome back to AgriTalk. Glad that you are with us here this morning. Davis, you know, I should point out, I, I mentioned yes. that, that there are a, a recommendation in, the, uh, in, in there for the Farm Bill to find a way to support and incentivize the early adopters on some of the conservation tillage, you know, no-till, strip-till, cover crops, uh, Uh and so on. It doesn't include how to do that. It just says, listen, find a way. Yeah. Um, It's not an easy answer to come up with. That's every every conversation that I have with those that are involved Mm -hmm. in the effort to find a way to provide incentive uh, ongoing incentive for mm-hmm. you know the, the, I call them legacy guys yeah. yeah is really really a difficult question to answer well because if you're going to get credit you know offer credit for that shoot it's real easy for me to say I, I, I've, well, been I've been doing, doing no till for like 40 years yeah, yeah. where's yeah. my money uh-huh can't prove it yeah yeah it's, it's, it's interesting it's yeah. interesting okay um, let's bring in Lance Honig, Chief of the Crops Branch at the National Egg Statistics Service there at USDA in Washington, D.C. Lance, welcome back to AgriTalk, man. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well, Chip. Always a pleasure to be here. Yeah, glad you are. Glad you are. There's some important work going on right now. Okay, Ag Outlook Forum is going on right now. Uh, there were That's some right. acreage 
estimates. Do I call them estimates or guesstimates or what? I'm not exactly sure what to call them. Released in the balance sheets this morning, NAS had nothing to do with those estimates, right? That's right, Chip. We're, uh, we come online here just shortly uh, at the end of the month on Planet Acres, but they're looking at everything, right? Acres, yield, production, the whole yeah. outlook. And that's the first look that you get from USDA. Right. So the March 31 prospective planning report, the survey is being conducted right now, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, Chip. Everybody should have a survey form already in their hands in the mail. That means you've also got the information you need to go out online and fill it out if you'd rather do it that way. Uh, but for folks who don't mail it back in or complete it online, we're going to start calling next week. So watch for your phones to start ringing as early as Monday. Right. Now, you've heard me say this before, and when I say you, I'm talking to the listeners. And you know what? I shouldn't I shouldn't say that. I mean, if you're a first-time listener, hi, Chip Flory here. I appreciate you. Uh, thanks for, for joining us. The, the surveys that are conducted at NAS, whether it be through Lance's group uh, in the crops branch or on the livestock side of things, they're only as good as the information that are coming in. Is that a fair statement, Lance? Yeah, that's a fair statement. And so I always tell people, if you want to help make the numbers as accurate as possible, the best thing and the easiest thing you can do is actually fill out those surveys when you get them or answer that call and help our enumerator get that information from you uh, when that happens. Because the more information we get in, the better the numbers are going to be. It really is that simple. Right. You know, there's been a lot of conversation on social media out there, Lance, about filling out surveys and uh, so much of it was centered on the once every five year census of ag. Uh, there's there, that was a process going through census of ag and, and getting as many responses as possible. But again, this is different. This is an annual survey that is done on the planting intentions. It has nothing to do with the census of ag. Fair to say. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The census is critically important and it is yeah. still going on. And so if you got one of those forms, absolutely fill it out. Uh, but that's talking about last year. And so now, you know, we still have to talk about what's happening this year, this upcoming year. And so the information you put on the census is wonderful, but it's not going to do anything for getting planted acreage uh, numbers for this season. And so that's what this survey is about. That's why I'm glad to be here and talk about it, because we don't want to lose sight of these annual surveys like this that we're doing, these important ongoing reports uh, that really go along with yep. things like the census data. Yep. You know, those that dislike the surveys or the USDA numbers the most will follow it up with, well, they can't get it right anyway. Well, <laughs> you can help us out and give some give some accurate information though for the market to function and for the market to function properly it needs the best information at the earliest time that it can get it and filling out this um, the the planted acreage survey for the prospective plantings report indicating intentions for the 2023 crop season is getting information to the marketplace as accurately and as early as we can. I I think that's a fair statement. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. And, you know, there's already a lot of talk out there about what acreage is going to look like this year, but yep. it's all based on factors other than what farmers are actually planning to do. And that's what's right. unique about this particular survey is this is the first look based on what farmers actually plan to do, not right. based on what other people think farmers might plan to do. We're going directly to the source and let's find right. out, hey, what are you thinking? And we'll report out on that on March 31st. All right. Fantastic, Lance. Uh, what else are you working on right now? Or what should we be looking forward to the rest of the year? Well, grain stocks happen at the same time. And so the yep. same survey is also going to collect information on your grains and oil seeds stored. Uh, March is also a quarterly month for hogs. So we've got a hog survey out there as well. And really, you know, even though the census year brings us the census, everything we do every year happens this year as yeah. well. And so you can look forward to, you know, we start with planted acres now, but as the season goes on, we're going to get into harvested area. We're going to talk about yield and production. You know, the cycle never ends, right? As That's soon right. As you finish, you start the next one. So here we go again. Hopefully That's it right. won't be a wild ride, right? Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Lance, thank you, man. Appreciate you. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Take care. You bet. That is Lance Honig. He is the chief of the crops branch at USDA's National Egg Statistics Service. Um, you know, a little bit of tough love there for some that are looking at the survey and saying, they can't get it right anyway, I'm not going to fill it out. Well, if you want to help them get it right, fill it out, fill it out accurately, fill it out in a timely manner, and get it back to them. All right. Thank you so much for listening this morning. Come back this afternoon conversation with Kurt Kimmel from agmarket.net and tomorrow morning we've got Emily Score CEO of Growth Energy and the free for all